Amen. Amen. Good morning, Identity Church. Well, I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of awesome things that are going on. For those that are listening to our podcast, I just wanted to let you know that this is the last week that we'll be at our house. Amen. We are going uh, to a new church facility that we have uh, leased, and um, it's at uh, 395 First Street Southwest in Alabaster. So if you get off of the interstate and you head uh, down 31 like or up 31, like going towards Hoover and Pelham and all that, if you take the first uh, red light on your left, that is 119. Well, the moment that you get onto 119, you take the next right at the red light. And it'll take you around the corner. You'll go past CVS. You'll go past, uh, there's like a, a little dog kennel place, uh, a veterinarian place, and it is the next right. And it's back up. Alabaster Plaza. It's called Alabaster Plaza. And we're at the very back part of that property. And so it's just been a blessing to be able to now move from, from my home into a facility that uh, can accommodate people. I mean, praise God. You know, I would go talk to people. And I would say, yes, we're doing a home church. And everybody would look at me with that, that look like, you want me to come to your house? <laughs> what? You don't have a building? Well, now we can go and say, hey, we have a church building. And it's, it's right there off of uh, First Street. So people can come to us. They don't feel like that they're having to come into my home and be a part of my family until I tell them, hey, you're part of my family now. You know? <laughs> So, but that's what I want everybody to do. And we had a little bit of a discussion about this this morning is that I don't want it to change. I don't want our, our whole situation to change. I want us to be a family because we are a family and I want to bring more people into our family. And I want it, I know that it's going to be on their terms and we're going to have to, to play that way too. So uh, there's going to be lots of changes. We're going to, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. But the last two, to, this is the third week of my series on Jesus culture. And see, Jesus culture has been, a, has been this part of an idealism that God has been putting in my heart for years. And I, I was reading the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes essentially was Jesus' sort of first message, if you will, to to all of Israel. And when they started coming, there was multitudes of people that started coming to them and they were poor and they were sick. And they were just people. And Jesus started preaching to them that he didn't go to the synagogue and go find all the Pharisees and say, let me tell you about God. No, because they were going to reject Jesus. But the people wanted to see this new way that God is talking to man. And see, Jesus said, I'm going to tell you how, how you can interact with God. I'm going to tell you what your life is going to be like if I can just get you to believe something. And so whenever Jesus said, blessed are those, well, that, those words, blessed are those in the Greek, was a completely different thing. It was, it was uh, makarios. But in the Roman Latin language, it was beata. So that's why we have these things called the Beatitudes is because in Latin, 
Beata was blessed. And so when you would actually see these, these uh, scriptures, they come to life because heck, a couple of years ago, I didn't even know what people would go to Beatitudes. And I would go, well, maybe because the first, you know, the first letter of each one of these you know, scriptures has a B in it. Blessed. Okay, well, I'm going to go with that. No, but I actually looked into it and actually in 63 BC, there was a philosopher in Rome that came up with this idea of the Beatitudes. It was the Beatas, but Beatitude meant to be happy, to be blessed, to be euphoric. Oh, how would you like some euphoria right now? I mean, that would be awesome. You know, Jesus was telling a bunch of people that lived in slums, that had no money that was being taxed to death, they were coming to a new kingdom and a new way of thinking. Jesus was going to change the culture. And see, Jesus' culture is now that everybody can be blessed. Everybody gets this beatitude idea. Not just the rich, not just the people that are famous. You know, I think most of the generation that we have right now, everyone wants to be TikTok famous, you know? <laughs> and it's not even YouTube anymore, it's TikTok. You know, they got to dance themselves into a thing and they hope that people like and share. Well, you know what? Jesus was preaching to these people because he wanted to have his own TikTok moment. Jesus was having his own TikTok moment, sit, standing on the side of a mountain going, I want you to go tell everybody that they can live this new culture. So Jesus became TikTok famous that day. But you know what? We can be TikTok famous too in the word. We can go and tell everybody. There's a new culture that has come to you. When somebody says, I'm poor and I don't have anything else. When I don't have the ability to... To, to go beyond my circumstances. You can take them back to blessed are those that are poor in spirit. Do you know that if you were to tell somebody that you could move to a new place and you would have all the opportunity and resources, everything available to you, most people would go, can I buy a plane ticket? Can I get on a bus? And Jesus said, no, I'm going to bring it to you. I'm going to give you this kingdom, and this kingdom is going to live inside of you, just like Luke 21 says. <coughs> so essentially, most people have read the, the Beatitudes, and we've already covered several of the Beatitudes. But what I want you to get from this is that this is a culture statement. Don't think of this as this is your do's and don'ts. Don't think of this as I have to see, you know, I, I have to be poor in order to get the kingdom of heaven. No. He's saying that if you don't have the Spirit of God, I'm going to give it to you. You don't have to go to the Holy of Holies. You don't have to, you don't have, to have all your sins forgiven of you like they did in the temple. You know, I teach on spirit, soul, and body. And basically the temple was God's way pre-Christ of showing people how the, how the body of Christ works. You have this flesh, it's 
the five senses. I see things, I hear them, I taste them. I taste a lot of good stuff. I mean, just take a look at this. Woo! I can get me some good stuff in this mouth and I understand that it's going to make me fat, but that's okay. But see, in our spirit, see, my body gets fat when I go and eat. But when I overfeed myself in my soul, I change my mind. Because my soul is my, my mind, my will, and my emotions. That was the place that needed to be cleaned. That was the place that the sin was forgiven in the temple. They would bring in bulls and goats and all these other things to sacrifice. They would actually, this molten sea thing, it was a baptism. We're going to baptize you and get you better. See, Jesus told them, he said, this temple that I'm going to tear down. And he pointed at this monstrosity. Forgive me, uh, I got this off the internet. It's not, it's a little bit fuzzy. But this was what Herod built. See, when the Babylonians came in and they destroyed the first temple, Herod came back and he rebuilt the temple. And what he did was he separated man he separated the Gentiles. He separated the Israelites. He separated everybody but the actual Levite class and the, the super dupers, the people who had the money and the fame. They were, they were the ones that are able to get into this part of the holy. They could actually have their own. They could actually have their own um, sins forgiven them. You know why? Because in this court, the court of women, in each one of these, they had people that were selling. See, I couldn't just bring my own goat. I couldn't go and find a goat and say, okay, I'm, I want to have my sins forgiven. They would go, oh, that, that's not a good goat. Or, well, it wouldn't have been a goat. It would have been a lamb. Or it would have been a bull. But I brought a bull in. They would go, no, that, that has not been blessed by the priests. So come over here to this open court over here, and we have a bunch of doves and birds and, and you know, different things that can be sacrificed because it's been blessed. And by the way, go mortgage your house because that's what it's going to take. So for your sins to be forgiven of you, it costs you your very existence. You know, it, it actually shows... I think, and, and I, I can't think of the scripture right offhand, but it said that they sacrificed for Jesus two doves. I'll have to go look it back up, but I remember this, just it hit me. Do you know that most people, most people that was what they could afford? So if you had a major sin in your life, a dove wasn't going to do it. Because there was a whole list of things that you could have your sins forgiven of you if you have it sacrificed. And most people couldn't even afford the doves. That's how bad it had become. Religion in this system had become so rampant that people were just, they just said, I don't even know if I can deal with God. The Sumerians had walked away. They weren't even worshiping anymore. See, Israel was trying to separate the poor from the rich. Because that's what man does. Man loves to create a class system. 
But see, Jesus said, I'm coming to bring a new culture where there is no class. The kingdom of God is the same kingdom of God that's on the inside of me, that's on the inside of everyone that believes. We don't get to choose our kingdom. Our kingdom was given to us by Jesus Christ, and it is the same kingdom that God is in. Think about that. Wouldn't that have been music to your ears if you were poor and sick? And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Been like, I'll buy the bus ticket. Where can I go? So we went through this. If you want to know more about some of the first ones, um, I'm going to start um, over here in... um, I'm going to start over here with blessed are the merciful because we've already covered uh, the first, I think, three or four. But blessed are the merciful for, for they shall obtain mercy. So I want you to understand a couple of things about what mercy really is. Because mercy is a thing that a lot of people are like, you know, if dad come over here and we started wrestling and dad got my arm behind my back and he'd go, cry uncle. Or he'd go, scream mercy. You remember that? We would do that when we were kids. Dad tortured me. And then um, <laughs> what, what would happen is, is we'd be sitting there and I'd go, I'd go no, I'm not going to say it. And see, I thought mercy was is that he was going to let me go. But really, that wasn't mercy at all. Dad put me in the arm bar long before mercy was even in the, in the picture. But see, mercy is really this thing that is to help one seek aid. That would have been like if I had said, hey, dad's got me in an arm bar. Lindsay, come over here and jump on his back. Put him in a, a, a stranglehold. You know, everybody attack dad. That would have been more along the lines of mercy. But see, what I want you to understand is is that when we look at these blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Jesus taught that and then from that point on, he started giving examples. He went through all of these examples in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to try to show us through parables. See, Jesus was trying to say, hey, I'm going to tell you up front In the Beatitudes, my first message is an outline. It's actually a three-chapter outline. Go read the whole thing. It's pretty long. But then from that point on, he starts giving parables and telling people about what what these things about the Beatitudes, this new culture that he was trying to bring. And it says here, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Well, one of the ways that we see mercy is in a parable that he taught in Matthew 18, 25 through 30. And it says in 18, 25 of Matthew, it says, but as he was not able to pay, talking about a servant. So there was a servant that owed money to a master and he owed a lot. In fact, so much that he could not pay. And so the master, he went to the master and and said, hey, I can't pay it. And the master said, I command that he be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he has that that the payment may be made. I want you to understand back in this culture, if you couldn't pay your debt, you went into slavery. 
See, that was the way everything worked, was that you went into slavery. At least you got to live. You and your wife and everybody else got to go with you, and you just went and worked for a household, and then you paid your debt off. That was the way it was supposed to work. And see, God was saying that in the Old Testament, that was the way it worked. And Jesus was trying to say, hey, I'm bringing a new culture. I'm bringing new things into our life here. I'm going to be the payment for you and for your family and for your children and your children's children's children. See, Jesus was trying to get them to a place to say, I'm going to pay your sin. But see, the world doesn't see mercy. The world sees profit. The world sees the way that they want to see how they benefit themselves. It's all self-absorbed rather than being absorbed with what I got through Jesus. And it says here in verse 26, it says, The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, forgave him of his debt. This is what God did when he sent Jesus to be in our midst. Jesus came and he went to the cross as one sacrifice for sin for all time for those who believe. And then it says here, it says, um, it says the, the master was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him of his debt. But that servant went out and found one of the fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. This would be about like a hundred bucks. This would be about like if, if I owed mom a hundred dollars and mom said, you're going to pay me my hundred dollars for the end of the day. I'm coming and your dad's going to put you in an arm bar. <laughs> He's going to break that arm if you don't give me. But see, well, I think it's going to work opposite of that. You think it's going to work opposite of that? I don't know, Dad. I, I don't know, Dad. You were pretty, you were, you were pretty stout back then. Um, but it says, and he laid hands on him. He put him in an arm bar. And he took him to the, he took him uh by the throat and said, pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me. He said, have patience with me and I will pay you all. In verse 30, this is what's funny. I want y'all to pay attention to this because this is the way Satan works. See, Jesus came and forgave all. See, God in the Old Testament said you can pay your debts off by working them off. But at some point, he actually put provision in the law to say after seven years, your debt is paid. See, that's the way it worked in the Old Testament, Old Covenant kingdom. But see, the world's, the Satan's kingdom, this is the way it works. And it makes no sense, but this is how Satan works. Verse 30, and it says, He would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. You know what? Those are some pretty lucrative prisons. I mean, you got a prison and you make some money. That's awesome. I mean,
mean, I don't know about y'all, but those were some great prisons. They must have had gold like on the floor and you could just like, you know, pick it up and it was like a luxury hotel. I mean, think about this. This is the way the world works. This is the way Satan works. Is that Satan will come and require a prison sentence. He doesn't require your debt to be paid. See, he doesn't want your debts paid. This right here, this person was so unmerciful. This fellow servant was so unmerciful that he said, I don't want you to ever be able to pay me off. I want you to be beholden to me. You know, in our life, we have this happen. We have people that constantly want to hold stuff over our head. We have people who want to create opportunities to say, oh, well, I can control you through emotions or I can control you through, you know, whatever. I had a friend of mine. <laughs> I worked with this person a long time ago. But if something didn't go her way, she would she'd get all pouty. And she'd go, I just don't understand. And one of my bosses finally said, you don't have to understand. You just have to move on. Do you know that that is the thing that we have to understand is that mercifulness moves on. So I got a couple of things I want you to focus in on here. How to be merciful, to give aid to one that is seeking aid. Be justified when you are right. So, so if I'm justified to right or wrong, so if I'm in the right, and you're in the wrong, then I can say, hey, I want my money. And that's perfectly fine. But mercy says, let's work it out. Let's have some leniency. So can you pay it back to me over five years rather than today or you go to prison? And see, on the flip side of this, to be a hypocrite would be, I create a wrong and then justify that wrong. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you this right here is what I see all the time. I see this more than I see anything else is that when you justify, when you create a wrong, well, I'm upset with you and, and you, you did me wrong. And you, you sit there and go, well, what did I do? Well, you walked by me and you didn't say hello. And I was like, when? When did that happen? You know, I had a guy that worked with me and he would always pout. Like, I mean, literally, he would be pouting. And he would go, well, you didn't, you didn't do, you didn't communicate with me properly. And I would go, what did you want me to do? Well, every day I wanted you to come and talk to me for 15 minutes. I was like, man, am I supposed to just know that? Like, you know, if you want to create a wrong, maybe at least put up a sign, hey, I'm wronged if you don't come and talk to me for 15 minutes. That would at least be somewhat merciful and kind. But there are people who will say, well, you didn't call me this week, or you didn't do this, or you didn't do that. Well, guess what? That is unmercifulness. Mercy would be, hey, I want this from you, because I feel like that we have this relationship. I feel like we have this, this way about us. And mercy would be, let's work together to have some 
understanding. Number two, to be moved with compassion. You know, when I see a fellow person that is having issues, now this is not, may not even be a brother. This may be somebody that's an unsaved atheist, you know, crackpot, and you're sitting there going, how do I help them? You know, mercifulness, the mercifulness of God that's on the inside of us, it gives you a compassion to say, how can I help them? You know, sometimes that's pulling out your wallet and saying, hey, I'm going to give you a dollar. But let's just say this. Let's say that there's no amount of money that can fix a problem. You know, sometimes the best compassion you can have is just go tell people, hey, you know what? That's okay. Let, let's talk about this. What, how can I help you? And the person goes, you have a million bucks? I go, no. But you know what I may have? I may have connections. I may have people that we can talk about. See, God's put gifts on the inside of each and every one of you and put people in your life that you may be able to go, hey, I don't have a million dollars, but I know these people over here that do debt collection or, or that do debt correction, and they give you loans for things. Okay, that's one way that we show compassion is how can I help? Because I may not be able to help, like, solve their problem fully. Do you know that, and I'll give you this, this little big example. A couple of years ago, there's a guy I work with. His daughter and him were having a really bad, I mean, just bad relationship. And she was getting older. And so I was off on this trip with him. And one night we come back from dinner and we're sitting there and he just feels compelled to tell me about this situation. And the compassion of God just came out of me. And I said, I'll do whatever I can. I said, but I feel the Spirit of the Lord telling me that we need to pray and get an agreement over this situation. We need to agree that your daughter is going to start working with you. And I told him flat out, I said, the Lord's going to show you ways of being able to speak to her heart. You may not like some of them, but you need to do them. And you know what? We prayed. We went into our rooms. The next morning, he gets up and his daughter calls and says, hey, you're going to be back in town this weekend. Now, this, this girl, he had moved, that him and his wife were divorced. He had moved to another place in Pell City. His wife lived in Huntsville, his ex-wife. His daughter had not been to his house in a year. She calls him up and says, hey, if you would have me this weekend, I want to come. And he said, yes, absolutely. And see, he had had a problem that he had been in it with her. And he was almost going to jab that thing and ask questions about the thing. And he said, I got that check in my spirit that said, don't do it. Let, let's work through this. Let's let her come over. Let's let her have some time to know your heart. You know what? The compassion of God came out of him and mercy came out of him and leniency came out of him and they got together and now he comes and stays with her every other week. He came to me. He was crying. He was like, I, I've never seen God turn around so quick. And I said, that's what you need to be believing for. 
That's what you need to be believing for is that God can turn any situation around because He's merciful. And He'll show you how to be merciful too. And it says, so, you know, be moved with compassion, but the hypocritical side says, be moved with envy and strife and malice. Well, you can come over, but, you know, did you fix that problem we talked about? Let's, let's talk about that before you actually come over. See, that would be what hypocritical, unmerciful thinking would be. Number three, it says to give people the benefit of the doubt. You know what? This one right here is hard for me. I'm a cybersecurity guy. I look at everybody like, I mean, mom right now is trying to hack me some way. I mean, that's, I'm not even giving her the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm going, I mean, I was literally setting up the church network and I was going through and I was trying to put as much junk security-wise on our Wi-Fi network that you may not be able to use the guest Wi-Fi. I mean, it may be that bad. Because I was like, I'm not even going to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're going to do something bad. <clears throat> but we need to. This is something God's working on me. And so, you know, this is the one, I, and I'm going to be honest, this is the thing that I, I, I had a boss of mine that said, people are people and things are things. Things are made to be used and people aren't. You need to remember that because you're going to be in situations where people, you're going to want to use them. You ever heard of trying to get up the corporate ladder by crawling up somebody's back? Well, that's one way. But how about this? How about I need somebody to do something for me? So every day I call Charlie up like I did last week and said, paint my church, Charlie. Right now, go paint it. Go do it. Go get on that ladder. So seeing people as things to be used is the wrong way, is the hypocritical way. Sorry, Charlie. I apologize for, for putting you through the last two weeks. But, and Dad and everybody else that was in here, good night. In fact, I'm going to, on our first service, I'm going to put y'all's names up. I'm going to have y'all come up. We're, ooh, I, this one's been on my heart about um, but the number four, to build up rather than tear down. You know, this is important. When people say, I can't, you need to say, no, you can. You need to give them. I can do all things through Christ Jesus that strengthens me. You need to spend some time building people up. There are people that I work with. I spend probably an hour a week just building them up. I just go and, and call them. I set up meetings with them. We talk about work, but throughout that whole time, they're like, well, I don't know if I can do that. No, you can do that. I know you've done it before. Build them up. You know what? Especially people who are the same level as you in something or your peer, where it might be, well, one of these days, I might be your boss. You know what? This is a hard one because, you know, you may be sitting there going, well, if you screw this up, it's going to look really good for me. And they're going to remember that. And I'm so, you know, hypocritical thinking is I'm going to take joy in when they screw this up. Like, I'm not going to tell them they're about to screw it up. You know, I've had many a times in my career where I could have said, you're about to mess up. And I would go, should I tell them? 
And the Holy Spirit goes, yeah, go tell them. And you know what's funny? Is the fact that when I go to help them, they do something amazing. They obtain mercy. I obtain mercy for my mercy. What? You mean you went and told our boss that I kept you from screwing up? That's better than them screwing up. I'm being serious. Think about this. There are times where people are going to go, oh man, you really pulled my butt out of the fire. I'm going to let people know that you helped me out. But if you don't show mercy, if you show hypocrite, critical thinking towards people, they're going to go, yeah, thanks a lot. I ain't telling anybody. That was my idea. And you're going to find people who are going to be hypocrites. That's fine. They will be found out. You know, I had some hypocritical type things happen to me several years ago. What was funny is I actually got a raise and a level and they took me out of a power, a power position. But you know what? A couple years later, after I just worked through some of the things, people were like, oh yeah, we're going to put you back in the power. We're going to let you still have the same money and level. You know, all things are going to be found out. We just have to take, we have to not have the misfortunes of others as our joy, but we have to have power, the power of God is in seeing people succeed. We need to make others succeed. You know, every time I think about our heart and our belief system, if we put bad seed into our heart, our heart, whenever you see heart, if it's not like, you know, uh, David stabbed such and such in the heart, that, that means he actually stabbed him in the chest, okay? But if you see, you know, believe with all of your heart, if you see blessed, blessed are the pure of heart, it doesn't mean that, oh, my heart is pure. I have no plaque or buildup inside of my chest cavity. That's not what that means. Our heart is where we hold our dearest core beliefs. In fact, this word cardia here, actually, when you go back to the root of the word, it means the core inner self. It's our core beliefs. And so, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, if our heart is our belief system, if we have a true, pure belief towards God, we have a true belief that God's going to, just like the merciful that we just talked about, if I believe without a shadow of a doubt that God is going to take me beyond my situation, then I'm going to believe God for my, for my circumstances. I'm not going to believe other, I'm not going to believe the, the thoughts that come in my head of, well, how could I use someone to get past my circumstances? See, our true belief is that God's going to supply our need. God is going to create opportunities for us. So I'm going, to use, I'm going to use this as an example because this came to my, when this one came to my heart, I was like, I was praying. I said, Lord, how do you want me to explain this? And he said, you need to go talk about Moses. See, Moses came up and it was before the 400 years. See, there was 10 years there was 390 years 
from the time that Joseph went into captivity. And it actually tells us in the Bible that it was 390 years before the children of God came into the land. What did God tell Abraham in, in Genesis 15? He said, your people will be in Egypt for 400 years. So when God says it's going to be four, at least 400 years, that's when it's going to be. Well, what does Moses do? And I love uh, Pastor Jim McCann IV, um, little Jim, he was talking about this one day, and I said, oh, that just makes sense. Andrew Womack even said some stuff very similar to it. But it was 10 years before the children of Israel would have had the green light to go. Moses goes out there and kills his Egyptian. Egyptian's over there whipping an Israelite. He goes over there and he kills the Egyptian. He's going to start a one-man war. He's like, we watched Taken the other night, you know, and he went and beat up a whole crime syndicate by himself. I mean, it was awesome. He's like Jack Bauer and he's like, you know, he's like Jason Bourne all into one. And he's in there and, you know, he's acting and doing all this stuff. And he was like, you know, I will find you and I will kill you. Well, see, that's what Moses said. Moses was Jack Bauer, and he came out there and said, I'm going to kill every Egyptian out here that's mistreating an Israelite. Well, you know what happened? Even the Israelite turned around and said, who the heck are you, and why are you doing this for me? And by the way, get away from me. You're going to cause more problems for me than you're going to fix. And then <coughs> Pharaoh found out about it and said, hey, I'm going to have to get Moses. So Moses fled. So think about this. They could have left at 400 years. This was 390. How many years was it until the burning bush? 40 years. So Israel was under captivity 30 more years than they should have been. Do you know that Moses had a heart for God? We can all have a heart for God. And sometimes we get a little bit zealous. Like, we want to go ahead and kill the Egyptian today. But I really need to wait until God told me that I was supposed to do what I'm supposed to do to get myself or my people or whatever out of a situation. Do you know that our number one problem is, is that we want to get ahead of God? But see, true belief in God is, ah, I'm going to believe that God told me he was going to do something and that I was going to do something, but I'm also going to wait for him to say go. Do you know that that is important because a lot of times it causes our time period to be expanded. So if Moses had just went and lived in the palace for 10 years, well then he'd have been in the palace, you know, getting fanned. Then all of a sudden God would have said, okay, it's now time to go take the, the, you know, Israel and all that out of there. You know that more than likely because Pharaoh died within that 10 years and Ramesses was his son. Do you know that I believe Moses might have become Pharaoh? Because it was Pharaoh, he was Pharaoh's oldest daughter's kid there's a good possibility that they would have just walked out. They, they just would have said, hey, come on, let's just go. It would have been easy. 
It wouldn't have been this, hey, we got to have all these plagues and we got to do all this stuff. It would have been, hey, I'm Pharaoh. Look, let's get, I'm going to send y'all off. I'm going to give you money. I'm going to give you everything that you need to be able to go do it. Do you know that we get a really good illustration about what God is willing to do in order to make his word come to pass? But you know, a lot of times God's sitting there going, I'm going to open up a door and you're just going to walk through it. There's not going to have to be all this, you know, ta-da! But you know, most people like the ta-da. They want the plagues. Can I call fire down from heaven and kill them all? And Jesus goes, no! If you let me, I'll open up a door and we'll walk through it. So in Exodus 3, 2 through 4, it says, it says, and an angel of the Lord. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Whenever you see an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, always go, this is Jesus. The same thing happened uh, when, um, when Isaac, when he, when he was fighting the angel of the Lord, wrestling him. So, you know, he hit him in the hip and messed him up. The angel of the Lord was the pre-incarnate Jesus. It was before he was born. It was, it was God coming down as the word. And see, this is exactly what happened here. But I want to show you there's a little bit of a flip-flop that ends up happening. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So this, this was not a burning bush. Like, it was not on fire. Like, there was no flame. There was no heat. It just said, from the midst of the bush. So there's a bush, and there's this flame-looking thing on it. So essentially he said, so he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. That's what it, it's basically saying. There's a fire there, but it's still a bush. Just looks like fire. It looks like fire. It's not being consumed. Nothing's being burned. It says, and then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this is a great sight. Why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. The angel of the Lord, Jesus, precarnate Christ, came, lit himself on the bush. But guess what? God said, he turned. See, God was looking for Moses to say, I'm still expecting something. I want you to get this because this was so powerful to me. I, this right here a few years ago just lit me up. Because even though I can screw up and mess up and I've got 30 years, that I, you know, 40 years that I've been living in the desert when it was time. And I truly believe this. I believe Moses spent 40 years going, well, I screwed up. I'm going to die out here. But then I believe that the moment that Moses said, you know what, I still remember God was going to do something for me. I still believe in God. And he's out there thinking about God. Well, that was the moment that the angel of the Lord came. And he goes, I'm going to turn aside and see what's going on. See, 
There are two things that we should have we should understand about having a pure heart towards God. Number one, Moses was not afraid to look at this spectacular to show up. He was looking for it. He was roaming the desert at that point and he was looking, God, you're going to do something, aren't you? How many people are still looking for God to do the spectacular? I do every single day. I'm looking for God to do something amazing. I'm wanting him to do something in my life. I'm looking for that burning bush. So we, we should actually look for the spectacular too. When God says, hey, look over here, we do it. Because then he's going to show us the next thing. It says, number two, God was looking for someone who was looking for him. Do you know that the best way to have a pure heart is to constantly be looking for him? Trying to find him in every single thing. If I'm looking over here and I say, you know what, Lindsay might have something for me today. Charlie might have something for me today. You know, Kaylee might have something for me today. And I talk with them. You know, I have a friend, me and Charlie were talking about it. His name is Jerome. And he, he was at VCF with us and he was... I mean, just a great guy. He works for the power company. But Jerome sends me texts about every other day. It's usually scripture. Sometimes it's other things. And then I have Alan Duke. He's from Life of Faith, and he sends me stuff all the time. Do you know that I can be sitting there pondering upon something and going, Lord, what do I do? What do I do about this situation? What am I supposed to be doing right now? And you know what's funny is I get a text you know, I was, I'm going to show you this. You know, the other day I was sitting there and, you know, Jerome sent me this thing. I was, well, he also sends me Roll Tide. So, you know, there's another really good thing that he sends. But, you know, he was, I was sitting there and I was like, you know, I was talking to the Lord and I said, Lord, I said, you know, how do I grow myself? How do I see a hundred people in my church? How do I see that? And I get this text. And the text says, all it says is, Sarah's faith embraced God's miracle power to conceive even though she was barren and was past the age of childbearing. For the authority of her faith rested in the one who made the promise and she tapped into his faithfulness. And that is Hebrews 11, 11. You know, I was sitting there and I go, Lord, show me how. I just have to rest in his faithfulness. I have to rest in his faithfulness. I sent it back and said, you don't know what's going on. But thank, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Holy Spirit. Do you know that most of the time, we're sitting there listening for someone else. We're not listening for ourselves. You know, most of the time I get more stuff for people than I get for me. Do you know that we need to constantly be looking for God? We need to constantly be looking for what God's going to do in our lives. Because we can't see God if we're not believing for him to show up. You know, God is looking for people who are looking. 
God's looking for lookers. How many people want to be a looker? I'm already a looker. I'm just going to tell you. Just look at this boy that's speaking right here. I'm going to tell you. But you know that being... You're 10. Huh? You're 10. I'm 10 years old. That's, yes, very, very boyish. But do you know that being a looker, being someone who is constantly looking for God to do something, is a, is a fruit. Do you know that it's something that we, that we get by listening to his word, by believing for things? It just doesn't happen every day. Because I got news for you. I'm at a place right now to where I can see the 12 or 13 of us that's in this room. But you know what? The Lord started saying, you, you got to look more. You got to think bigger. And I started having to, to, to look and go, what are we going to do? That's how the building come about. That's how some of these other areas, because I was looking for 2,000 square foot building. I was not looking for a 5,000 square foot building. My faith was not there, but I was having to rest in his faithfulness because he knows what is best. I don't. Because I was just thinking, if I can get something bigger than this 14 by 14 living room that I live in, that, I, that we're having church in, it's going to be so much better. So, you know, if it's 20 by 20, that would be better, right? We can get, you know, maybe double the amount of people. But the Lord's going, I'm going to give you a sanctuary that's going to have 2,200 square feet. It's going to have six rooms for you to have children's church and to have babies and to have all this stuff. And I'm going... What do I do with all that? He goes, you got to put people in it. Do you know that being someone who looks for the Lord, being someone who looks for the next thing, he's going to show you. He's going to show you. I promise you, if you are looking, he will show you. He's not just lying to you when he says, if you seek and if you knock, you will find. This is a promise, but it's a fruit out of faith that we have to walk in every single day. Did y'all learn something today? Yes. Amen. We're, we're going to pick back up on this maybe in a couple weeks. I'm going to start maybe doing another series. I've got a couple more areas that I want to cover here, but we'll see how this goes. Um, but if once again, for those that are on the podcast, if you want to come and be a part of our, our church, uh, we have that coming in the next few weeks. We're going to have a grand opening on November the 7th. So we would love to see you there. And y'all have a great rest of your week.